happens when you program robots to consider the feelings of other robots? It turns out it's quite predictive of real human behaviour. David Rudroff, a professor of psychology at the University of Geneva, showed us a demo of his little social robots at the World Conference of Science journalists this year. I'm trying actually to make machines, robots or virtual agents that function according to the same principle as our own psychology. So I'm not necessarily trying to make machines that are super optimal, super reliable, but more machines that are artificially conscious. My trade, my interest in, is in developing artificial consciousness. His cute little bots, which you can see on our website, are programmed to attract to certain objects and avoid others. They also attract to other robots, just like we do with other humans, but only if they predict that the other robot likes them. In algorithm terms, that means the other robot won't back away if the robot drives towards them. The problem is the little robot has to decide whether to move towards the object it likes if the other robot is also moving towards that object. We also sometimes try to imagine what's going on in the mind of others, because sometimes, you know, that's useful for us to know what, how people are going to react or what they liked or don't like. It can be good information and useful. So in that case, the same principles uh, that are involved in my model were extended to social cognition and perspective taking. If the robot predicts the other robot is friendly, both robots will drive up to the object they like. This, of course, is the optimal solution. Everyone gets what they want. But if the robot is programmed to assume the other robot will be unfriendly and back away, it gets a bit conflicted. If the robot can't predict what the other robot will do, the bot just isolates itself and starts displaying quite repetitive behaviour. These behaviours, according to Professor Rudroff, are reminiscent of those found in people with social anxiety and autism spectrum disorder. He thinks that robots and algorithms may be able to teach us something about how psychological pathologies play out in real life. In this episode of The Medical Republic, you'll hear more from this colourful interdisciplinary academic about why he believes robotics have a place in psychology. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, so today, uh, we were all really enchanted by your very cute demonstration of robots who seemed quite anxious and sometimes neurotic. Uh, and I understand this is some kind of simulation of, of human emotion. Do you want to explain for our audience who unfortunately can't see the demonstration um, what that was all about? The same way we can imagine ourselves elsewhere and maybe decide to go there based on what we expect, we also sometimes try to imagine what's going on in the mind of others because sometimes, you know, that's useful for us to know what, how people are going to react or what they liked or don't like. It can be good information and useful. So in that case, the same principles uh, that are involved in my model were extended to social cognition and perspective taking. So the robot would try by observing other robots, here one, to understand what the robot was about, what it likes, what it did not like. So for instance, you can assess what happens to the robot and its behavior if we limit its capacity to project itself uh, in the shoe of another. So for instance, in one of the demo I was referring to, part of the activity of the robot was to try to imagine and understand what the other liked. When, when you do that with this algorithm, you have a behavior from the robots where they don't show any more joint attention. Uh, they tend to be focused on uh, a specific objects, stay in their own world, and have repetitive behavior. 
And all those things are very characteristic of diagnosis criteria for autism spectrum disorder. So the advantage of robots or virtual agents in this type of things is that you can test hypotheses about, let's say, mind-behavior relationships, including hypotheses about possible mechanisms that underline symptomatic behaviors, uh, social anxiety, uh, autism spectrum disorder, depression, etc., etc. So one application is, I would say, clinical psychology, but computational psychiatry, um, with both a name of better understanding, but also a name of predicting, refining differential diagnosis, because different mind disorders could lead to similar behaviors. And with that, we can look for things that are fine. Then there are many other applications in the industry, potentially, like companion robots, empathetic robots, that can help uh, and share the life with an isolated elderly person. Um, it's a big trend those days in age, but the truth of the matter is that most of what are marketed as empathetic robots are basically empty shell and simulation. I'm just trying to do better. That's really interesting. And so what would a depressed robot in your, if, if you did a simulation of one, what would, how would it behave? Well, it would eventually uh, uh, feel, I mean, anytime it would imagine a scenario that could, you know, giving a better life, it would always appear too complicated, too hopeless. And uh, it will then tend to withdraw, uh, stop exploring, uh, uh, tends to avoid a lot of situation by expectation of it being too demanding, for instance. Mm -hmm. A robot with social anxiety, I mean, it's an hypothesis of, it's a way of thinking about social anxiety, is like, he would like to play with the group of other robots it sees, because he's interested in people. He's interested in what other robots are interested in, so if he sees a robot playing with something, it will want to kind of, oh, that must be cool, right? But that's one hypothesis. Unfortunately for this poor robot or agent, it believes for some reasons uh, that others do not like him. So it thinks that, well, if I imagine myself moving close to the group or to other robots and I put myself in the shoes, in their shoes, remember, he cares about the other robots, they will feel bad because they won't want to have me around. And because of that, in the algorithm, in order to not make the other robot unhappy about its own presence, the robot will tend to avoid mm -hmm. joining the group. So those are kind of examples. But you see, here you can make mechanisms uh, and connect them to individual and collective behaviors. And we are very much interested in, in collective behaviors. In current robotics, I would say, there are different trends. And one of the trends is motivated by the desire to make robots that feels more natural and alive is to make robots that really look physically like us. Mm -hmm. Like a company called Anson Robotics is doing that. Uh, I have a totally different perspective. Think about uh, movies like WALL-E, where those robots really do not look like us. They are little toys. What really matters is the way they function, the way their mind, quote-unquote, function. And if they function in a way that is similar to the way we do, then we immediately have this kind of reciprocal connection with them. They feel more alive by you know, looking like a, a can uh, than by looking like a real human being. 
So it's more important to give a good mind to the robots than to give them a human shape to make them more human. You work in this really unusual interdisciplinary space um, that I think is so interesting. Why did you decide to work in that space? What can it tell us that other disciplines maybe can't? Well, I always believed uh, and heard about it and it was in kind of the, my family culture that uh, thinking outside the box, uh, thinking in a multidisciplinary way and along the path actually developing a more universal knowledge was essential to innovation and, uh, and breakthrough and doing things that make makes a difference. And everybody sort of believed that then in practice for your career is not always very uh, very uh, good strategy because it makes you struggle in a way uh, universities academic institutions funding agencies uh, journals are organized in a quite sectorial manner and so when you are too multidisciplinary like i am you are a specialist of nothing and there is this belief that you need to be the specialist of something so sometimes it's a struggle. But at the same time, for me, I could never give up on that because I thought that was the path, so I'm a bit stubborn and I keep going. Yeah, that's super interesting. Well, great. Thank you so much for um, coming on the show. It was really fascinating to hear a little bit more about your lab. Yeah, we are very welcome. Next week, I'll be back in Australia, and me and Francine are going to talk about whether we're being too hard on integrative doctors. Catch you next time.